You'll find the words of my text in the following portions of God's word. First of all, Exodus 20, verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Literally, it says there in the Hebrew, Thou shalt have no other gods before my face. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Matthew 4, 10. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Psalm 103, first part. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not our, we ourselves. Finally, Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. By the way, I made a meditation on that in the standard bearer under the influence of this son. Uh, it'll come in the next standard bearer. I have set the Lord always before me. That is Jesus talking there. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. On these and many, many more passages of Holy Writ is founded. Question 94 and 95 of the Heidelberg Catechism, to which we must call your attention this morning. And there we read, What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of mine, of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God, Trust in him alone. With humility and patience submit to him. Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, glorify him with my whole heart so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or beside that one true God who had manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust thus far. A question. Shall we preach the law to Christians? Some, quite a few, they know it's an insult. No, don't preach the law to Christians. Because it is in conflict with the freedom of the redeemed saint. He is redeemed. He is justified. Jeremiah 11 as quoted in Hebrews 8, tells us that the Lord God with his own finger writes the law in the heart of every redeemed saint. They don't need it. They don't need the law. They're free. They're under grace. No longer under the law. Moreover, it'll induce the Christian, it'll cause him to seek his salvation in the works of the law and make him a hypocrite. Those people that say, don't preach the law to the church, they emphasize justification, as I always try to do, and it's so hard to, to make it plain. You can learn a lesson from them. Boy, do they know justification and all the text that teaches it. It's all done. Fall down. Christ did everything for you. All your past is forgiven. All the future sins are forgiven. And you have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, just as though you yourself had fulfilled the whole law. And that law is written in your heart. What else do you want? Now, of course, we do not uh, deny the truths that they mention in the defense of their position. We don't deny it at all. We emphasize it. But there is a... 
know, there is a there is an adder, an adder, under the grass, ready to bite you. Wherever they talk that way, that's a very dangerous thing. And it avenges itself too, because the churches that teach that no law preaching. No law reading even in the church. Don't read that law every Sunday morning. Those churches are on the retrograde. They're going backward. In piety. In the fear of Jehovah. It avenges itself because it's the lie. Look at this simple thing. The Bible says it too. Look at that simple thing. Just give me any Christian. Any true Christian. And there is one voice within them that says, Oh, I love my You can't get away from it. Our fathers are strong on that point. They say it's impossible that a man, once redeemed, having Christ in his heart, should not long to live according to that law. That's plain as daylight. You can't get away from that love of God in your heart. How could you ever do anything else. The law is beautiful. There's nothing bad about that law. All the badness is in us, not in that law. That law, mind you, here is Jehovah God. And here is the law. What is the law? It is a reflection, mind you, of God's own heart. The law is ethical, ethically good, beautiful. The Bible is full of it. That's why it's nonsense. Besides, you know, if you have that law close to you, if your father and your mother handled that law in the house over you, poor children, it teaches you, it teaches you righteousness, holiness, and truth, and the love of God. It is marvelous. That same law, if you have that law preached to you every Sabbath, have that law preached, that searches your heart and the intents and the motives of your heart and it digs up all manner of sin that comes in within us. In the second place, it also teaches unto us, just because of that, the preciousness of the cross. And through that law preaching, it leads you to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ and appreci appreciate him so much the more. Oh no, we must continue to preach the law as we begin again. And I'm always glad when we started the law. I love the law and law preaching too. We start with the first commandment. I preached on that last Sunday night, but there was only 81 of you. One elder and one deacon, the rest couldn't come through. So rather than to lose it again for another year and a half, we thought we preached again. And then, first of all, we see the exhaustive prohibition. And then the absolute and exclusive demand. An, ex an exclusive and absolute demand. That's positive. Now, starting out, let's start it first of all. No matter who you are, or where you live, or when you live, you must have a God. And you have a God. You can't do without it. If you lose the true God, the very moment you lose him, you have another one. That's contrary to the modern thought. As I said last Sunday night, I had a man, I worked under him, the city engineer. And he was a very polite man. Charming. But when I, when I spoke to him about God and his Christ, and I had to because he was cursing without realizing it. Right? Without realizing it, he was cursing. He was very careful. Very charming man. Then I, he started to talk to me. Very interesting. Wasn't angry at all. Then now Garrett listened. I find no quarrel with you at all. 
You love the Lord, you love religion, you love the church, go ahead. He says, but God don't mean a thing to me. I wouldn't curse that God. I, I just slipped my mouth when you told me about my cursing. I slipped my mouth. I hear it and I curse. But he says, he doesn't, I don't concern myself with that God at all. I have no God. Now you see, there you have the lie of modern life. They conceive of three possibilities. There is all those fools that bow before Jehovah God of the Bible. And there are all those foolish millions and billions of heathens that used to bow before copper and brass and gold and silver and the stars and what have you. And there are they. There are neither the one nor the other. No idol and not the true gods. They are the enlightened men of the 20th and 21st centuries. And they don't need a God. They don't concern themselves about a God. Now that's not true. That's not true. If one thing is clear to the Bible student is that every man must have a God. Can't do without it. Practical atheism, with the exception of a very, very few, practical atheism is impossible. The little exception is though are those that have committed a sin against the uh, Holy Ghost. The unpardonable sin. There you have true atheism. I only met one in all my life. Because their conscience is seared shut. They have no conscience anymore. There's very few. You have to be very close to the truth to become one of those. You, don't, you never find one among the heathens. There is none. But you have to be in, in Christianity, you have to be by a very, very good church. In very good churches where they preach the, 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 the pure truth, there you find also the men, the most unhappy of all, that have committed the unpardonable sin. That would be close to Christ, like the Pharisees were. The unpardonable sin is this, that you ascribe the word of the Holy Ghost to the devil. That's what they did. The work of the Holy Ghost was ascribed to the devil. And you can know it too. If you have done it, you know it. Very plain. If you are a practical atheist, then you rejoice in it. You're never scared of it. You're perfectly at ease. That man too, uh, we talked to him, Reverend Lubbers and I, and about three, four weeks later, he was dead, and he was already then 82 or 83 or 84 years old, and he was just as much at ease and laughing and joking. You could tell, too. He says, you, you can quit digging, Garrett. He says, don't dig into my heart, because that's exactly as I tell you, he says. He says, there's, there's all nonsense. There is no God. That's all. Those are a few. But all the rest of all humanity, they all have a God. Now, there are five reasons, and you better listen. Those are very important reasons. That explains your heart, too. All five have to do with your heart. Number one, you have to have a God. No matter what it is. Because you are created in the image of God. That means you are entirely adapted. Your whole soul and makeup from within. You are adapted unto the deity. The God. You can never shake it off. Unto all eternity in hell too. You're adapted unto the Godhead. That is. Indelibly, that means you can't wipe it out. Indelibly, there is a consciousness that there is a God. Somehow or other, even if you're born in the wildest of the wildest heathen lands, all the men that searched Africa and Asia and China and all over the Isles of the Sea, 
Wherever they go, they find men on his knees. And somehow or other, whatever it is, sometimes very foolish, childlike, but they all lay on their knees at times, you know, and they worship, and they cry, and they bring their sacrifices, and they try to pacify their God. There is no nation ever found without a God. Because you are created that way. That's the image. You know what the image is, don't you? You look in the mirror, and there you see yourself. That's your image. Now here is God standing before a mirror. And when the Lord looks and sees his own reflection, that's you. That's humanity. His own reflection. And now you can sin. You become, can, can become almost like a devil, like Judas, but you can't get rid of that image that stays with you. As far as the formal sense is concerned, formally, that stays with you. The material, you lost. That is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That's the image. That's the content. That is the material content. But as far as the formal side is concerned, you can't get rid of it. Your knowledge may become folly, your righteousness crookedness, and your holiness fail. But you stay an image of God. You can't shake it off, and you'll have to have some kind of a God that may be your wife. Your wife may be your God, or your children. We come back to that later. The second reason. Not only is he made in the image of God, but his whole essence, the essence of man is made to be a servant. The only happiness on this world is that you are a servant. That belongs to your nature. You can't wipe that out either. Sin did not essentially change your nature. You stay a servant, even today, after you've fallen into sin. And therefore there is an added reason there. Man, no matter where you put him, in what circumstances, he is bound to seek a God whom he may serve. I've seen in my, in my life, I've seen many of them, and different ones too. Different gods whom they serve, with all the enthusiasm, with all their powers, all their mind and heart and soul, they're all wrapped up in the God whom they wish to serve. Serving belongs to your nature. You can't get rid of it. You may deny Jehovah all you please. You may break all his commandments. But instead of Jehovah, you have another Jehovah. A Jehovah made by hands, conceived of with the mind, or any, or any which way, but you have a sort of a Jehovah. You have a God. In the third place, everything in this world, that's our experience ever since we are little children, and how soon you find it out. They proclaim that you are absolutely dependent every moment of your life. Utterly dependent. That's why, that's why pride is such a folly. Pride, why well, it's the silliest thing to be proud. Stuck up. Boast. You know that your dependence is really a terrible thing? You're dependent on all things right around you and below you and above you. There is an impression brought on us from the time we are very small that terrible and great things surround us and threaten us. Power stronger than we infinitely stronger. And that's why, because of the dependence, that's why he seeks a God to protect and to trust in and rely on. Let me give you some examples, some beautiful examples. Let the proud man think of that when he's stuck up and strutting around 
Where is, where is, his, where is, his, where is his strutting on? If, if, if the living God didn't always press that world under his feet, where would he be? What are you? I read a terrible account. They think now that the Russians lost five men. I don't know whether that's true. I'm not so much concerned about that, but there was something about that story that two of them were sent out into space. We begin to understand a little bit about it now, a little bit by reading, that, one of, that two of them were sent out into space and that they went 200 miles in space and they were lost in the universe. Talk about terrible things. How can you be proud? In the second place, how about not breathing for a minute or two? Stop breathing. Suppose that all the oxygen is taken out of the air. You have no more air to breathe. That you live in a vacuum, in a vacuum, no air. Take the air away from you for a minute, 60 seconds. For two minutes, 120 seconds. How long can you stand it? I imagine that all of you this morning sat down by a breakfast. That's number three. And mother put everything on the table and... Finally, you shove your plate aside, and that's it. Those are daily things. How can you ever be proud? Everything round about you. Those are only three now. But you can go on two thousand and two thousand. Right around you. Every moment, you're utterly dependent. And therefore you seek a God to trust in, to rely on. Crazy, insane, silly. I know, very silly. We come to it pretty soon. But they do. They want security. The whole world is full of security. They struggle to talk toward security. But man, man remains with all the security in the world, no matter what you do. And you know, don't forget, please, to come tonight. I have a practical sermon tonight that applies this, all of this. You read the text. You'll see once. Read the text of tonight. That's an application of the first commandment. Now, in the fourth reason, not only are you utterly dependent, but you are living right in the middle of the curse. The curse is every moment round about you. As a little child, with a smile on your lip, you go to a red hot stove, and you cry out, you burn yourself. Terrible powers are round about us, fire and water and flood and wild beasts. And I don't mean the tigers and the lions, because they're pretty well restricted now by civilization. I mean the wild beasts that are by the billions and zillions and trillions around about us and within us. I read an article in, uh, I think it was Reader's Digest last week or somewhere else, I forgot. I read so much that every man has diphtheria and consumption and all those terrible diseases off and on and how the body is always fighting against those wild beasts that are trying to invade our tissue. And they write about that terrible fight that is going on in the body to cast them off and to kill them off. How those white carpuses wrap themselves around those invaded 
invading bacteria and viruses and kill them all. There is the curse. You have to do it every day. All your life. Sickness, pestilence, death. There is that always lurking death around the corner. And you know how, they, how it can strike. One moment laughing, happy, young, vibrant, full of pep. And the next moment, dead. That's hanging over your head. What would you say if a jet, if a jet airplane strikes right there, right into the congregation? The next moment? Who, who, who tells you that that can't happen? And so, so there are a thousand things round about man. And they learn that more and more and more. And that causes them to seek for a God as their protection. But the most beautiful reason of all, the faith. That you must have a God. That is what the Bible calls natural love. Natural love. Don't ever deny it. It's there. Natural love must have an object onto which it can attach itself and wrap itself round about it and hold it to the heart. A God they can love. They must have a God to love. It's the most powerful thing in the heart of a man is love. If not God, or then themselves, or another creature, or something, but they have to have a God to love. Now all those things, those reasons, they all have practical significance. You know, idolatry is not simply the bowing before an, a visible object, a concrete object of brass and silver and gold precious stones and what have you not at all there are many more idols that you can't see many more even the children in catechism know that I asked them oh yeah they smiled right away and uh, from various hands went up they know and when I says well uh, uh, give me a few and they gave me all manner of examples they know the children know that there are all kinds of idols. And don't think that because we are the Protestant Reformed Church, that is, that we are of the true Church of Jesus Christ, that we don't have our idols. It is true tonight. It is true this morning of you and of, uh, of all churches. Uh, like the prophets say, as your cities are, so are your idols. You know, I remember reading uh, for the first time as a little child about Rachel sitting on a camel, and she was sitting on an idol. And I, I was an idol. Rachel? Rachel sitting on an idol? How was it possible? God's people? I had read about idols and heard about idols, that the heathens are full of, full of idols, but Rachel? How was it possible? It is simply the acknowledgement of some power that's going to help me and protect me and support me and will be my object of love and kindness. Any kind of an object. You've got to be mighty careful with your wife. Especially young men. They become a slave to their wife. That's the first danger of marriage. Young man, don't make an idol of your girl. God is a jealous God. He hates it. Especially that fifth reason. That's the love, the natural love. It's like a trap. It can entrap you. So that you sin against the most important commandment of all. The first commandment is the most important. You can, you can hear it in the songs of the world. I, I worship you. I worship you. 
If you live over, you have the same danger all over, you know. There is no particular age. You have children. And you make a Jehovah of your children. Silly. Ask the teachers. You ask teachers. My Johnny, my Mary, they know. I believe them, I don't believe you. Oh, I could tell you stories about that. But you know, I think. You make a god of your children. You're not interested in somebody else's children, but your children. Now, of course, your children are much more precious to you than other children that don't make a god of your children. And so you can go on through life. You have a whole list. The first one is always the first one is nature. The whole surrounding. You just study the history of the nations. And you see once how that nature plays a part in substituting for Jehovah. Nature with all the great bodies in the heavens, the stars. And the great ocean is a god. Neptune. And the hunt is a god. Or a goddess. And you go on like that. And almost simultaneously, man becomes a god. Manhood. Do you know that the word Baal is the strong, the husband, the strong, powerful, brute of a man? That is Baal. That's the continual god that was among Israel. The very idea of humanity is a god. Man. Exalted man in our present age. Didn't you see the idolatry with uh, John Glenn? Not John Glenn alone. No, the idea. We, we are conquering space, man. Terrible. Don't go along with it. It's all vanity and wicked, and God is jealous. Then you have, following closely upon that, the state. You saw it, that a little bit older, uh, the state, for instance, as it was the God in Germany, as it is right now in Russia. The state can be a God, too. And they would use the very same psalms, as it were, for worship of Hitler as they do for Jehovah. And that the children in school would say, I believe in my fear. I believe in the fear. That's Hitler. The leader. You take the refined natures of mankind, they have their God in the ideals. Idealism. In a very refined way, they adore the idea of justice. You have judges that don't care a bit about God, but why, you're amazed. There was that judge, for instance, that had these uh, communists that came in a submarine. I think that was him. No. No, it was not the case. Anyhow, he had communists. He had to judge communists. Something like ten about ten. And I read a story of the life of that man. What a marvelous regard for justice. Well, that becomes his God. He makes a God of justice. Others, you know, like for instance in early Greece, that's about, oh, five, six centuries before Christ, then beauty was a God. Ideal, see? Beauty. You can tell it in their wonderful statuary and in their poetry. The poetry of the Greeks. The world today don't, can, cannot even understand how Homer could have written the way he did. Homer, that great poet of the Greeks. Then you have philosophy. 
That was later, in a later period, about 300 years before Christ, when you had those three great men, Socrates, Plato, and Aristoteles, those three. Philosophy, was there God? And you have honor, honorable men. And then you have the millions upon millions, and the America is full of that idolatry too, where the, where the belly is their God. The belly is their God. They smack their lips, and the fat droops from their mouth, pork chop after pork chop, and eating and drinking to excess becomes idolatry. They adore their belly. That's their God. Then you have others where strength and agility, strength and agility, especially in the world of sports, is their God. Thousands and thousands of them. They offer up money in the worship of agility and, and sport and strength and might. And then you have your thousands and hundred thousands. They make their God fortune, luck, chance. God hates it all. All of these and many more. I can't enumerate them all. Now the commandment says that thou shalt not worship, serve, love, adore any other God before my face. And the horror of it is, beloved, that if we do those things, and don't forget, we all do. To a certain extent, we all have idolatry. The worst of it is that when we formulate and make our own little God, wherever you do it, you may sneak away somewhere and do it, but wherever you do it, you do it always right before the face of Almighty God. You can crawl in a hole somewhere and have your idolatry, but you do it right before God's face. He hates it. He is a jealous God. He doesn't want you. He doesn't want you to formulate any other God beside him. He wants to be alone, as he will be, until all eternity. Even the devil in hell never will have any idolatry. And we won't either if we are in hell. After the judgment day, no more sin. No more sin. That's the end of sin. There's only one capacity then to suffer for all the idolatry we committed. Now, what is the absolute command and demand? This. The Lord wants you and me to serve the one true God. What does that require? That is not a, a natural love. Natural love is not sufficient. You must have spiritual love. That's the first requirement. Spiritual love. You find that in Romans 5, verse 5, or 6, one of the two, I think, 6. Romans 5, Verse 5 or 6. There you find it. That's the first requirement. It says there that hope maketh not a shame, for that the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts through the Holy Ghost that is given unto us. See it? You have to have that has no sense at all to even put that commandment before your face as far as positive results is concerned 
Unless you have that love of God in your heart. I presume, of course, that you have that love in your heart. And I can preach to you. Otherwise, the preaching has no other result than that you become harder and more wicked and set yourself more and more against the preaching. The first requirement that you must have is the love of God. And that's a gift of the Holy Ghost who spreads it abroad in your heart. And you know it when you have it. In the second place, what does it mean to serve the one through God? And that's the reason why we have Christian schools and fathers and mothers that talk to the children. Oh, can I notice it? Can I notice it? You know, talking to the children, you know, is just like, why, it's like smelling, smelling a fragrant flower, how those little buds open up before you talk, and how those happy faces when you mention the name of Jesus to them. Then you can read in their eyes, they are the mirrors of the soul, you read in the eyes of those children that it is not, it is not an unknown matter that you're talking about. They know what you're talking about, and they're eager, and you tell your stories, those eyes. That is beautiful. The second is knowledge of God. You're going to slip off more and more in a wrong path without realizing it, that you are building an idol before the face of God when you have no knowledge. My people are lost for lack of knowledge, says the prophet. In the Old Testament, Israel was lost because of lack of knowledge of the living God. They didn't know the Bible anymore. You remember how that one king, who was it, Josiah, who found the Bible? They gave him the Bible. They, he didn't even know about the Bible. And when he read the Bible, he tore his, tore his clothes up. And he wept and wept before God. The Bible must be a living book for your children. And then you breed wonderful Christians. And as far as we can do those things, that is, in education. That's why you have Christian schools. That's why we have the Bible everywhere. In the third place, to serve the one true God is that you trust him. Oh, I can't tell you how you know it. The pleasure, the pleasure there is in coming together at night, you know, say your wife and you, you're talking about your problems, and I tell you, they are sometimes terrible problems. What a wonderful thing, you know, when you finally conclude together and say, That's the burden that the Lord laid on us. And then there is a smile in the heart. You trust in him. You trust as he gave that to you. He gave you all your pain, all your blood, all your tears, all your sickness, all your pestilence, all your enemies, all your devils. And you know you have a lot of enemies round about you and within you. And that you then always live in this, in this consciousness. God, God did it. It is the Lord that did it. Then you rest. And you have the trust and reliance. I remember as a little child, I heard it. Maybe I told you before. But if you heard those old men pray, I still hear it. And I must have been three, four, five, six years old. It was always it came in. I, I waited for it sometimes because that idiom, you know, is an attractive idiom. The idiom is attractive. How that the, those men would stand there and pray, Oh, what, what we ons mogen laten zakken en zinken of you. Als op de rots, der even die kan geen wankelen weet. You know what I'm talking about? Oh God, that we may let ourselves fall down, that we may let ourselves fall down 
upon thee the rock that knows of no change. Beautiful. A beautiful idiom. Mogelijke zakken en zinken op de rots. Beautiful. Trust trust. That's the first commandment. Trust him. You know, then your enemies, your enemies become very small. Your enemies become very small and your ills become very small. But God becomes very big. Then you don't get so angry at your enemies anymore. You see God behind that enemy. Behind the stone that rocks you is Jehovah. He gave you all that hurt. And then you can pray for your enemy when you live according to the first commandment. In the fourth place, practical significance. And our Father say it too, the first commandment to serve and worship the true God means that you submit to him. You buckle under gladly. As I told that student of mine in the seminary the other day, when we talked about comfort, we talked about comfort. You know, our Heidelberg Catechism speaks about comfort. Well, there was one of the fathers that said, comfort is this. When you set a beautiful world, a wonderful world, over against the terrible world of pain and misery and sin and corruption and death. And the beauty of that world wipes away the... That's not comfort. Comfort is much more than that. I says, then you'll never understand how that we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. How can you be more than conquerors if you win the army, if you win the battle? No, beloved. That wicked world, that devil and the power of sin, and all my enemies, and all the powers that want to destroy me, all those powers, they help me to go to heaven. That makes you more than a conqueror. And that is a, that's what it means to submit to the living God. You submit, not, you know, uh, bucking up against it, bucking up against all the, oh no. Now, you, you look, for instance, at that horrible world, the horrible world right around Jesus' face. Devils, Judas, Herod, Pilate, those wicked soldiers, those long pins they nailed through his hands. That awful cross, bowing the heads finally, bloody, bloody, sweating. How in the world will you ever go to heaven without it? See the point? Christ submitted. The submission of Christ is an example for the whole church. He realized that behind Judas was Jehovah. Behind the nails of the cross is Jehovah. And he submitted. He gave himself. And the person here in this church that does that is happy. That's happiness. If you submit to Jehovah and don't buck up against him. You know what the Bible calls that? That bucking up against Jehovah? That means kicking against the pricks. Like the Lord said about Paul. He was kicking against the pricks. But then you submit. Jehovah rules every day in my house. In the world, in the church, he rules. And if I must be bloody, if I must be in sickness, if I must have enemies, he gives them. If I must lose, if I must lose my case, okay, that's God. And so serve him with all our hearts. Not not on Sunday, when we are so nicely together in church, within view of the elders and the deacons. No, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the whole week, 
day and night. But body and soul. In the home, on the way, in the barn, in the church, everywhere. Businessman, employee, and employer. At work, at play, in politics, no matter where. You know what it is? And that's why I chose that text tonight. You know what, what I've been talking about now? It is written in the Bible of two persons. And whenever I read it, I'm jealous. It has a beautiful sound. That was Noah and Enoch. They walked with God. That's the first commandment. They walked with God. And one more thing must be added. You do that empathetically as of the party of the living God. Don't be ashamed of it. I ask you, is the, is the idolater ashamed of his idol in the world? Why, you can hear him shouting over the radio. You see him displaying his idol on the television set. You read it in your paper, in your magazines. They're not ashamed of their idols. Carry you, your Jehovah with you. Carry your Jehovah with you in the whole world. Don't be ashamed of Jehovah. Live him. Love him and serve him by his remarkable grace. Amen. Oh God, give us power, spiritual power. Give us the love of God spread abroad in our hearts that we may live according to the first beautiful commandment. For Jesus' sake. Amen.